forever. Dog. I was auditioning for two different roles, and one of them was a hostage negotiator, really dramatic and tense and everything. And then there was this little guy named Metaboy who uh, was asking uh, Sipwitz to dog sit for him. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or my brief role as Bradley Whitford's old rival on Perfect Harmony. Our guest this episode is Gordon Clapp, and if I sound a little nervous on the tape, it's because I'm a little nervous on the tape. I'm a huge Gordon Clapp fan. He was on NYPD Blue. I got to see him in a great Broadway production of Glen Gary Glenn Ross, Deadwood, Mayor of Easttown, plus a ton of theater, including a one-man show where he plays Robert Frost, does it all over the country. We talk about all that and more. Strap in. This is really a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gordon Clapp. There's so many things to start with. So you're 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 in Vermont right now. I know you're from New England originally. You're from New Hampshire, right? Yes. And you got your start pretty early on for someone who who grew up, you know, a, a decent distance from a major city. You were working equity houses at 12. Is that right? Well, yeah. And that was just uh, one summer I spent in a uh, in a little equity house uh, summer stock theater in my hometown, and. Uh, my reward at the end of the summer was to play a lead in a there was a there was a play with a twelve year old boy as the as one of the lead characters so uh you know I got to act with these these awesome um gypsies uh you know they were a bunch of great old theater dogs and uh a few years ago i was i was sitting in a uh, at my bar in l a uh and this guy came up and tapped me on the shoulder. He says, are you, are, are you happy I got you into this? And I turn around and it was Brian Clark, who had been the director, uh, of the artistic director of the theater and played my, my uncle in the, in, in the play. What was the play? And the play was called The Happy Time. Uh, it it, it uh, subsequently was made into a musical. And, uh, but, it, but it was a straight play at this point. It was about a it was about a vaudeville family uh, in in Ottawa, in Canada. And weirdly enough, years later, I ended up spending five seasons at the National Arts Center Theater in Ottawa. So <laughs> full circle across the river in Hull. That that's where um, that that's where the play was set in Hull, Quebec. I I love how much time you've spent when you're not doing TV, how much time you spent doing, doing theater. What were you, let's talk about that for a moment. What were you doing up in, uh, in Ottawa? What you did five seasons up there? Was it a, a repertory company? Is it a, after college, I went back to my hometown theater and, uh, and some friends of mine and I, I pretty much took it over, uh, and moved in, you know, David Strathairn, uh, John Sales was part of our group. Um, ah. Gina Davis was there, Chris Elliott. Um, and, uh, after, after the 74 season, uh, my girlfriend at the time and I decided to take a little jaunt up to Halifax, Nova Scotia to visit, uh, an old family friend. You're like mid twenties at this point. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in my mid twenties. And, uh, and this lady we were staying with said, uh, said, Oh, you must go into the theater in Halifax because it's a wonderful theater and I'm a subscriber and you tell them you know me and maybe they'll give you a job. Well, 
things don't quite work out that way. That seems like a pretty easy shortcut, yeah. I ended up starting a 15-year career in Canada through that recommendation. <laughs> it had nothing to do with her recommendation of me, but but for you know, she she dared me to go in and uh, and ask for a job and I did and and uh yeah, it was a it was a crazy thing. It just changed my life. I want to back up for a moment here. So was there was that the moment where you were like, "Oh, this is this could be a living because I know your father was a hobbyist and I know he would do some plays up in New Hampshire and it was something he would do um, in his downtime. But when was it clear that this was something that that Gordon could do for a living? Well, I never really thought about doing anything else. And, you know, at the time I was making a really meager living doing summer stock and uh, non-equity children's theater uh, <laughs> touring, you know, we, and we were like a commune. Um, you know, we all kind of lived in a trunk. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, we had an interesting group of people and, um, you know, we all just, you know, patched together uh, a, a meager income year by year. And finally, uh, I got a job that was going to pay me $180 a week. And that was that was a fortune back in 1974 yeah. for an actor. Yeah. And, uh, and I got my Canadian resident status and, you know, my Canadian green card. And, um, I was, I, I, I was up there for about 15 years on and off. I, I, I spent some time back in New York when, uh, when, uh, John Sayles, uh, got us all together in that, in North Conway, in that little theater. Um, and we did a play called, uh, a film called Return of the Skokas Seven. Right. Of course. And, uh, that made a huge splash as a, as an independent film, the year that Heaven's Gate uh, the hundred million dollar film was a flop, and uh, John Sayles made this this little gem for for seventy thousand dollars, and uh, so we all you know went to New York and uh, got agents right away and got in some doors, and then but I ended up going back to Canada because I was uh, I was working a lot there, and uh, and I really loved it. I loved uh, Toronto, and um, I had I had a uh, it was a great theater community and a great uh, and and there was a lot going on in film and television. And finally, in 1989, I had enough good you know network American network credits through my work in Canada that I that that I dared to you know to to put everything into a car and go to L.A. So you were doing uh, you were doing local hire work on American TV shows that were shooting in Toronto. Yeah, wherever you know, all over Canada. There were some good roles for for. Um, they were, it wasn't exactly local hire. It was that there was a certain kind of point system um, that you know the government would uh, would subsidize uh, you know give give the American productions more money uh, if the if some of the bigger roles went to Canadians. Oh right, of that's how eventually I got second billing in in um, in small sacrifices with Farrah Fawcett. That was the um, you're a uh, you're a cop who um, who who is investigating her and also kind of flirting with her. Yeah, she was some... flirting with me. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I apologize. That way. Yeah. Yeah. No. By all means, let's get the chain of command correct. Yeah. I, she was absolutely flirting with you. Let the record show. I was going to ask you how you hooked up with John Sales anyway. So let's let's get into that. You've worked with him a bunch of times. I didn't realize you guys went back to theater together. We go, we went back to to college together actually. But I didn't really get to know John until uh, senior year. He was a, he was a class behind me, and uh, he was in my in 
uh, the residential house that not where I live, but where we, we had our meals. And, uh, he, he was a, he was a big trivia buff. He, he watched every episode of Jeopardy, uh, at the time with Art Fleming. Fleming. Yeah. I was going to say that's Art Fleming years. Yeah. And, and he was a curious guy. So I, I, uh, I was directing of mice and men and I, I asked him if he might be interested in coming and auditioning. And he said, Oh, for Lenny, right? Because he's such a big guy. He's a huge guy. Yeah. No, for slim. I already have my Lenny. <laughs> turned out to be, you know, one of the one of the sales rep as well, you know. And and he said, you know, I'd be what I'd be interested in playing is the old man because uh, it'd be interesting if the old man was as big as Lenny, but because he was missing his hand, you know, he'd been relegated to just, uh, you know, being kept on as a uh, as sort of a you know a spare tire kind of thing. And uh, so that's what he did. He played he played the old man, and it wasn't until couple of years later that I found out about his writing and that he was writing at the time, he was writing screenplays for Roger Corman a couple of years out of. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also writing uh, fiction. He won, um, he won an O. Henry award for, um, for short stories, uh, for one of his short stories. Well, so many questions. It's so interesting because he, he got his start, as you said, he, he was doing so much stuff for Corman. He wrote a, a terrific monster movie called Alligator which was a cable mainstay when I was growing up. And it's such a, a delight to watch. But let's talk for a moment about Eight Men Out, which is a a magnificent piece of work, which I, I just rewatched this week, gearing up for this interview. When you did Eight Men Out, which is about the the Chicago Black Sox scandal of, of 1919, when 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 eight eight players um conspired to throw the World Series, you were you, well, you play the catcher who's got – you're sort of the conscience of the film. You and Cusack are kind of the conscience of the film, aren't you? I, I would say so. Uh, Bill Irwin to an extent, but he was kind of a hot dog straight arrow, you know. What I like about you is that you're a loose cannon, but you're playing it you're, – you're still playing on the up and up. You're on the level. Yeah. And it's so fun because Sales himself plays Ring Lardner in it. Um, you were a couple years older than a lot of the your teammates – Cusack, D.B. Sweeney, Michael Rooker, Charlie Sheen. Those guys are all in their 20s. You're already up into your 30s at this point. Was there a real sense of of sort of elder statesman quality or were you sort of mentoring a little bit at the time? Because you got, I mean, you have a lot of hotheads playing a lot of hotheads in this cast. Uh, well, what's it? What, what, what was interesting was John started writing Eight Men Out and, or, or adapting it in the, the I guess, the mid to late seventies. And he had his cast and, uh, David Strathairn was going to play, um, Shoeless Joe, but he always had me as a catcher, but he had Martin Sheen playing. Um, I think, I think he was playing Buck Weaver. Who is Cusack in the movie. Yeah. 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 Um, he, he had Gene Hackman as Chick Gandel. Uh, he had George C. Scott as the, um, um, as, as Comiskey, God. which, which still could have happened. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know whether he actually offered him that, you know, Cliff James was wonderful. And, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other guys he had, but then, you know, ended up Charlie Sheen ended up doing it cause it was 10 years later. And, uh, but he kept, uh, he, he, he gave Strathairn, uh, the role of Eddie Seacott, um, as you know, the, the veteran, uh, pitcher who was, a, who was on the cusp of retirement. And, uh, you know, I I think I was playing I was playing a few years younger. You know, as as uh, as Shock. I think Shock was in his in his in his early thirties. 
but I always played younger anyway. So, but they had to do a little bit of editing uh, with me running the bases because I just wasn't that fast. I was going to ask everyone. It looks amazing, by the way. You cannot tell. Everyone looks really because you know I'm 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 vaguely in the business. I have never been asked to play an athlete, but I I was watching carefully. Like this isn't like. You know, we can't put Margot Robbie's face on a on an uh, ice skater in the 1980s. So this is all these guys doing this work. It looks amazing. You guys, did you guys do some sort of loose spring training for it? Uh, we did. We had um, uh, a guy who played center field for the White Sox in the in the 60s. His name was uh, Ken Barry, the the bandit they called him. He was a great fielder. Oh my God, that's so cool! So that had to be an incredible. It's like when those when those guys play uh, uh, soldiers together and they do basic uh, for a couple of months. You know, that had to be an incredible bonding experience. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you shot some of it in Chicago, or did you shoot it all in L.A.? It was mostly in in, in Indianapolis, uh, a little bit in <laughs> Cincinnati. Curiously, none of the baseball was shot in Cincinnati. They what what they did was they dressed the park. Differently, it was the old Bush Stadium, B-U-S-H Stadium in uh, right. Indianapolis, the home of the Indianapolis Indians, who that year were the were the won the Triple A World Series. So it uh, we had to start a little later than we anticipated. Oh, because they made the postseason, and you had to, they had to use the park. That's incredible. That's so cool. Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here, DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. I want to talk for a moment about the the dream situation that you had on NYPD Blue. You know, the dream is always you get a series regular gig, but you start as a guest star on the third episode, and then you build yourself up to full-time series regular and then do the run of the series, do the entire... Yeah. You know, we're, that we're always saying like, oh, it'd be great if this turned into a recurring... You you won the lottery with this thing because the character is so interesting. So Metavoy, the first time we see Metavoy, he is asking Sipowitz to take care of his dog. He is this sort of weird beta detective. And at first you're like, ah, is this guy, what is this guy doing here? And then he gradually shows his, his mettle throughout the first couple of seasons there. Was that something you asked for? Were they deliberately building the character slowly? I think at the time, the only regular series, regular cops who were in it were um, Fancy, uh, Sipowitz, um, Kelly, David Caruso, and um, uh, Nick Turturro, uh, Amy Brenneman. So basically what they were doing was they were filling out the squad room. And and uh, Nick was, uh, was an anti-crime, anti-crime, uh, which was a uh, you know, it's a, a it's a different uh, designation. He gets kind of shoved up when Sipowitz gets shot. They, I think, they were looking for you know bodies to fill the other desks, and uh, you know maybe maybe stumble across somebody interesting. And so they 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 wrote in a bunch of these little roles, 
And uh, when I auditioned for the role, um, there, I, I was auditioning for two different roles. And one of them was a was a hostage negotiator. And it was about a, a 10-page scene. It was just went on forever. But it, and it was really dramatic and tense and everything. And then there was this little guy named Metaboy who uh, was asking uh, Sipwitz to, to dog sit for him. And I thought, okay, this Dennis Franz is a pretty intimidating presence. I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to say everything twice, like a, like a, almost like a stutter, you know? Yeah. Like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, two times. Johnny two times from Goodfellas. Yeah. I just watched that last week. That's crazy. You based Metavoy on Johnny two times. No, I mean, that occurred to me that that might be, be fun to do is, is a little bit of a, you know, you know, a stutter where the guy's saying everything twice. Yeah. So I did both. I did these two, pieces for david milch and uh Bochco was not in the room and uh and and casting and uh as i was leaving milch kind of goes uh yeah that that's funny the guy you know say, says everything twice it's funny yeah i like that i sat around yeah. for three weeks and went up to the grand canyon and all this other stuff and uh I'm I'm home doing a garage sale one day and um and I get this call. My agents say they want you for uh it might be two days. If it goes to three days, they'll pay you for a week. And I thought, wow, what do I do? What am I supposed to do with this? Am I supposed to do the stutter or and I, I have no idea what's gonna happen when I walk in and I'm at the craft service table and one of the producers comes up to me and goes, You're the kid who stutters, right? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. So, yeah, and I felt like I was shot out of a cannon that day. And uh, I, I just, I had way more energy than uh, I could imagine ever having again. <laughs> uh, it, it was a little over the top. It was a little over the top. And Greg Hoblet, you know, lassoed me and uh, wrestled me to the ground and said, we've got to believe that this guy is not that intimidated by uh, anybody he's tough he's a cop you know you've got to you've got to make sure you 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 bring that in and and milch was going i don't know should we forget the stutter i went no no (laughs) (laughs) it's my bread and butter (laughs) so uh yeah and it all worked out (laughs) it all worked out but i had no idea where it was going you know after at the end of the episode uh, greg hoblet said i think there'll be something for you you know during during the season i'm sure we'll bring you back a couple of weeks later i was over there and i was and i walked onto the stage just to say hi to everybody and there was a script there for episode five and i sort of snuck it and thumbed through it and then there i was again couldn't believe it oh my god and then they brought me back in one episode for another cop who was you know as a sort of generic cop and they they sort of you know, and I put my little spin on it, and and but the big break came when uh, I was actually shooting an episode of Wings, which I had auditioned for nine times without any luck. The ninth time, they called and said, "We're sorry, we really wanted to go with Gordon, but this this other guy just had it, it's it was a size thing or something." And the next day, they called back and they said, "Um, we we wrote Gordon apart because we." <laughs> We feel so terrible. We really want to use them. So we wrote a part for him. So I was doing an episode of, of Wings and I got home and there was uh, a, a script for uh, the script with Donna Abandando. Yeah, sure. 
with 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 Metavoy meeting Donna and and that the rest is history. I mean, that's that's what what brought it home. Are you you bring up something really interesting? Are you one of those people? Were you at the time one of those people who could audition and then leave it in the room and like really not dwell on it and just move on and be like, okay, I did that. I left it all out on the field. I'm going to keep moving. Is that something you you were in the headspace for? Yeah, it, it took me a while to get there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. It, it, and I do that now all the time. You know, I send off these these self tapes because I, you know, they still. It's a new generation, and they, you know, they don't really know who I am. And you know, well, we've heard of you. I, uh, we, oh, well, that that tape is old. Um, so, <laughs> does that does that bother you? Does that does that? Because it, it's funny. My agent's always like, "This should be a straight offer." Uh, not always. Excuse me. Let me make something very clear. Occasionally, my my agents say, "Oh, you know, this should be a straight offer," and I was like, "You know, if they're not sure, let me read for it. What's the harm? Does it bother you to to audition?" Uh, it depends on what it is. Sure, there are some things that I do. I, I I will say, you know, that this is this is a ground ball. You should. They should just give it to me. You know, right? I just keep my glove to the ground and I can catch this thing. Please, come on. <laughs> you know, there. Yeah, there are things that, that that I look at and I I, you know, I would really love to play this character. So, so I'll do it. But but when I send it off, I just kiss it goodbye. Really, I because I I mean I know. I know they're looking at a lot of stuff these days because yeah. they can they can just get anybody to send these things in and they don't have to have sessions, um, you know, and just on lunch hours anymore, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, they can they can get a lot of material and uh, they have a lot to, to choose from. So I don't take it personally. It's such a healthy way. It took me years to get there as well. But when you when you get to that place. Every job is a is Christmas morning. It's a total surprise. You're just like, oh wow, I completely forgot I read for that thing. This is great. Uh, it's such a a, a healthy um, state of mind to be in when you realize that it's just such an inexact science. It's completely out of your hands, and uh, you know maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. But best to just go to the Grand Canyon. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Um, you had such a, a a colorful romantic history on the show with uh, Donna Abandando. There's an episode, a later Metavoy episode that I really love with you and Ellen Gear. <laughs> yeah, where she's an older woman. I I was dating a journalist, and she wrote an article for I think it was the Daily News, saying. Uh, Say, saying that I had not gotten my shot at the butt shot, that I hadn't gotten the butt shot yet. The butt shot was de rigueur on NYPD Blue. Dennis Franz got a butt shot. We saw, I saw everyone's butt. Crusoe and, uh, you know, Jimmy Smith and all of them. And so um, Bochco, uh called me one day and said, so uh, we're doing the butt shot thing. We're going to do the butt shot thing. It's a, it's a May, November rona- romance. But you're May. <laughs> so I, I couldn't imagine who November would be. <laughs> and Ellen Gear was so lovely. And uh, she's a great lady. And um, we just had, we had such a good time. She's hot as fuck in that episode. I'll say it. It's my podcast. I'll say whatever. I, she's hot as fuck in that. And she's so beautiful. She has this beautiful long white hair, this terrific bone structure, no work. She's just naturally gorgeous. 
Um, did you ever, um, you must have had some fun because she's a, if people don't know Ellen Gear, she's a bit of a theater mainstay here in L.A., in a town that's not necessarily known for its theater. Did you get a chance to, to talk theater? Did you get to do any theater with her? Did you? Uh, you know, unfortunately, we, we ne- I never, uh, I just I just never got back to her. Um, the the first play I ever saw in New York was uh, was a play written uh, by Donald Hall, who was a protege of Robert Frost, and it was called An Evening's Frost, and it was uh, three actors telling the Frost story through uh, mostly through his poems and through his letters, and. Um, but it was it was very biographical, and Will Gear was the older actor, right? And so I said to her, you know, I want to play Robert Frost some one of these days, and it would be really fun to do an evening's Frost. And uh, you know, I told her that I'd seen her father in it, and she said, "Oh, I remember that. It's wonderful. We should do it at the Botanicum," you know. And uh, it never happened. I just I just never really followed up on it, and. You know, for the last 12 years, I've been playing Robert Frost in a one-man uh, play entitled Robert Frost, This Verse Business. It's not structured the same way as the as the, uh, the Evening's Frost is. So it's not a play that you wrote. It's a play. Did you find it? Did you commission it? How did this come across your desk? I literally stumbled across it. Um, an old friend of mine was reading plays at a theater in um, Cape Cod and remembered that I was a Frost freak and said, this is a wonderful script. We can't do anything with it. Uh, would you like to, you know, uh, I could put you in touch with a playwright, which he did. And I called, uh, I, I got the script and, uh, and I called, called him and I said, I'm your man. <laughs> you and I are going to do this. And we've just, we, it's been a, um, it's, it's been a wonderful partnership. He's, um, Andy Dolan is his name, A.M. Dolan. And uh, he cobbled a script out of hundreds of hours of audio of Frost talking, you know, giving these talks, in, uh, which are, were almost stand-up routines in a, in a sense, you know. Yeah, you've talked about how funny Frost is. You you talk about how how you, you are able to focus on Frost's humor, which I'll admit, even as a, as a lit major, I was... I, I love his work. I would never have characterized him as funny. Um, uh, what is it about, uh, <laughs> if I may quote Goodfellas, what is so fucking funny about Robert Frost? <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he he just has a, he has a way of looking at things. You know, he um, you know he talks about uh, let's say uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Sure. Yeah, he he'll, he'll say okay. And the next thing about the next thing about that is is the is. Um, He's he's sending up critics, mm. uh, and, and he says, uh, "God, I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to get in the middle of it of, of this uh, of this thought." But he uh, he talks about uh, I have a friend named John Chiotti who's told everybody what this poem means. He told me too. <laughs> he says it's a death poem, and uh, I don't mind that as uh, long as it. You lift it higher, make a lovelier thing. Doesn't don't drag it down, operate not anything like that. He says. They says the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep. He says that means what that means. That means uh, the world, life is lovely, dark and deep, but I must be getting to heaven. Eh? So yeah, that's what he says, and that's all right, isn't it? That's pretty. 
I didn't think of that when I wrote it. <laughs> and then he goes on to tell the story about about how uh, he was in Texas once. He says, but my favorite favorite part of the poem is is uh, that when when the horse uh, d- does the thing with um, he he gives his he gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. I was uh, uh, I was in Texas once uh, when I was asked. And somebody somebody said, well, isn't that ascribing to animals an ability that only belongs to human beings? He says, I was in Texas when I was asked that once by a professor from New England. And I, I did. I never I never uh, I never respond myself. I just turned to somebody else, uh, a horseman. In fact, Frank Doby, the great horseman and Texas writer. I said, can horses ask questions? Frank Doby said, better questions than most professors. Zing! <laughs> kind of stuff, you know. Taking taking the piss out of things, and uh, and uh, and there's just some, yeah. There's a, and and there there's just such beautiful writing, and uh, and his love of metaphor, and his love of uh, you know, he has these silly couplets that he does. So I had you know, I, I go through high school reading The Road Not Taken, and uh. I'm like, okay, so clearly what we're saying here is get out there and take the road not taken, take the one that's complicated and messy and and do that. Then I have a college professor whose name I'm going to retract because I'm also not entirely sure which one it was. But he insists that the poem is tinged with regret and that because the, the last stanza begins with, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages and hence two roads diverge in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. Like there's a sense of like, oh, I actually should have taken the main road. What do you think? Well, uh, it, that, that th- this poem is, has come under much scrutiny in the last couple of years. You know, people people have, have said what, and I've always thought, what what is the sigh? Is it, is it a satisfied sigh or is it a sigh of regret? But he, but it, it, in, in the show, uh, you know, I think he said, uh, I should be telling this was a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I look down the audience, I go, you have to be very careful with that poem, very tricky. Road not taken. How shall the road not taken be taken? Well, it's been taken a lot of ways, and that's all right, you know, take it further, take it, take it, take it away. Uh, uh, that poem isn't very like me. It's like a friend of mine. Uh, he said to me once, we came to a place like that, going home, you know, a fork in the road. I said, which way? He said, doesn't matter. Whichever way you go, you'll be sorry you didn't go the other. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he had so many tragic elements to his life. His, he outlived four of his six children. Yeah. One of the two children who made it, you know, into um, old age was was um, was institutionalized. His <sighs> daughter Irma. Um, so the only one who really made it through full bent was was his daughter Leslie. His son Carol committed suicide. And he lost uh, he lost a, a a little boy at three. Uh, his his most beloved daughter was uh, uh, died. Uh, after, just after childbirth, you know. So he, he, there were a lot of things that uh, there was a lot of darkness in his life, um, but he overcame so many things and and then became this this kind of troubadour. Or I don't know 
what you'd call him. I mean, he was almost like a, he was a rock star poet on the campuses of, of, uh, of the colleges, um, especially with women. Um, Ken Howard, you know, our, our beloved SAG president. Indeed. And former uh, Thomas Jefferson in 1776. Uh, uh, when I did Frost at, at, when I did the Frost play at Amherst, uh, Ken was there and we, we'd known each other from, we'd worked together a couple of times and uh, he, um, he t- he told of uh, when he went uh, a story when he was a freshman at Amherst, um, and uh, somebody somebody came into his dorm one day and said Robert Frost is reading poetry over in you know Psi Upsilon or one of the fraternities and they all ran over there and listened to this old guy, and uh, yeah it's just uh, it's a real uh, uh, you know just a. a a force of nature he was. And um, so his granddaughter, uh, uh, I think three of his grandchildren are still around. And um, uh, one of, one of his granddaughters who was the, sort of the gatekeeper of the society um, was, uh, was at a, um, a convention, uh, a frost convention out in Erie, Pennsylvania. And they invited us to come out and do, do the play. So I got to meet her and, uh, and she gave us, uh, uh, you know, she she basically gave us an, an endorsement, if not a total thumbs up. Yeah, and I, I I know how hard it is for people to, you know, see their loved ones, um, you know, as as a character in somebody else's piece. You know, <laughs> sure, sure. I would think it, I, I I would think that that was a that was hard for her. She, she spent a lot of time with him and she kept insisting he's not a doddering old man, you know? And, <laughs> and um, I hope that uh, I, I do, I do really energize this performance. It's uh, you, you, you bear a passing resemblance to the guy. When I, when I heard you were doing this show, I was like, Oh, that tracks. Yeah. I, I, that's a Gordon Clapp is a, uh, is a Robert Frost type. He was from New Hampshire as well. Was he not? He spent a good deal of time in New Hampshire. He was born in California. He was born in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Oh, I think I realized that. He and his mother uh, and his sister, um, after Papa died of cirrhosis, um, moved to Lawrence, Massachusetts in, um, uh, when he was 11 years old. So he grew up in, in Lawrence, which is very close to the border of New Hampshire, and then uh, lived in Salem, New Hampshire for or Derry, New Hampshire for um, for for ten years. That was the time uh, from which most of his poetry emerged. Either he actually wrote some of his best poetry there, or, or it was inspired by the time that was spent there. Slip very gracefully into to that accent. You were able to do a very credible New York on on NYPD Blue, um, and which was not always the case. There's people on that show who have uh, a version of New York, um, but yours is is quite is quite good. There's there's some, and we talk a lot about technique on on this this show. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the New England R and the New York R? Because you you understand it, even if you can't articulate it, you do understand it. Well, 
the uh, New England, uh, they put ours where they aren't, you know. And then take them away where they belong. Yeah, where they belong. Yeah. So they put it at the end of idea. I think. I think what I what I like to do is the difference between Boston and New York. You know. Yeah. A uh, Boston accent is like that, and they'll say, uh, uh, "Jerry, Jerry Remy." Uh, well, he's actually from Providence, and that's even harder. You know. Okay. <laughs> but he will talk about uh, Amica Insurance is uh, is one of the sponsors of Red Sox games. Okay. It's brought to you by Amica Insurance. Amica. <laughs> and uh, he talks about uh, uh, Dustin Pedroyer's at second. Pedroyer at second. That kind of thing, but that sort of happens with New York as well, and with 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 uh, um, the British accent. The, the British often do that too. But there's something the New York accent. It doesn't. The R doesn't vanish. It sort of transposes into almost a a W. I mean, the real old school, like Bowery Boys New York accent, where it's you know toidy toid and toid is 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 almost dead. But there are there are vestiges of it deep in the Lower East Side, deep in Brooklyn. Um, so it isn't it isn't the the New England R where it just kind of moves over to the end of vowels. It kind of it becomes this sort of uh, uh, softer. It's almost like an, uh, an extra vowel. Uh, the R in in New York, and and you've got it on the show. The problem is that I've been doing Philly. You know, I was doing Philly for for mayor, and uh, and that that one's hard to shake. You know. That's a that's a nigh impossible accent. It was funny how like what a phenomenon. Like everyone was talking about the performances, but right beneath the performances, everybody was talking about the accent, which is brutally hard to get straight. My wife's dad is from South Jersey, um, so you get a little trace of that downspeak um, in 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 him. But now he lives north of Boston, so his 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 dialect is just sort of a, this bizarre map of the Northeast. I don't know where the hell he's from. He's from like you know Boston, Pennsylvania. I don't know what's going on in his head. But um, your your PA accent and everyone's PA accent uh, was incredible. There was an SNL sketch about it, which is a, a good barometer for how uh, how how significant something is. But I want to talk about your work on Mayor of Easttown for a moment. I was delighted to see you show up on it. You've got a handful of crucial scenes in in that show. And aside from the dialect work, I'm assuming you guys had coaches on set. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone sounds really, really good and specific. But in terms of the emotional clout, you have just a couple of scenes. But one of those scenes, you've got to sell one of your sons out to another one of your sons. It is a raw moment. There's, you know, if, if you're still listening to this point, this is obviously a spoiler. But you you see your one of your sons destroying what is very clearly evidence. You know, this is sort of a Bush League acting question. But how do you get yourself to a point where you're doing Basically, the you, you show up on set, you hit craft services, and then you have to do the worst moment for a father ever. Are they, do you do sense memory? How do you get to that point where you're just at your rawest? That particular day, I was, um, uh, you know, I, I, I had just met my son. <laughs> oh, my God. You know. No, I actually had met him the day before. I, I, I met him the day before, two days before. So you've known the spawn of your loins for 24 hours. But I had, I seriously didn't know what was going on um, or what what happened subsequent to this because I didn't have any of the material and nobody was talking about it. And uh, so I didn't know how it was going to turn out. 
So as far as you know, you're just indicting your son for murder to your other son. So again, how do you get your, are you, are you one of those guys who's just in your trailer for a couple of hours sitting in the dark, like putting yourself in that position? Um, I don't think I have that kind of focus in, in, until the moment. Okay. It's, it, it, you know, it's hard for me to go there before it's, it's, it's happening. I don't, I really don't want to spill it all, you know, it's. Uh, okay. So part of the process is just sort of saving it up and then being ready to. Find that, that one thing that's going to, that's going to get me to where I want to be in the, uh, you know, to what I want to show, what I'm, what I'm going to show. You know, I only hope I get there. I just, I remember, I, you know, it was such a strange, it's it's a, such a strange time. Were you shooting during the pandemic? Yeah, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, being on a set where you didn't, you just didn't see anybody else until, until you got onto the set, you know, they didn't, you didn't get to know any of it. I had just done a play in Boston two, uh, you know, two years ago uh, with John Douglas Thompson and had a, had a fabulous time with him. Uh, and I couldn't even spend time with him during, you know, we were both in Philly at the same time and I couldn't, couldn't spend time with him. What play did you do with him? Oh, Man in the Ring. It was a story of Emile Griffith. Do you, do you remember Emile Griffith? Griffith? He was a, um, he was a middleweight uh, fighter. And the tragedy of his life was that he, um, he killed Benny Kid Perrette in the ring. And uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, he was bisexual and, uh, nobody knew it at the time. And Benny Kid Perrette was taunting him about being a uh, maricon, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah, taunting him during the weigh-in. And he brutalized him in the ring. And the, the, the ref didn't stop the fight. But then um, Emil went on to have, uh, have a great career. Mm. He kept fighting. But he always had to live with that. And, uh, and the play is it's, it's an amazing story that he years, years later met Benny, Benny's son, who was an infant at the time, who didn't even remember his father, but and and that's documented. It, it was actually documented. There was there's a film of their meeting that was at the Huntington in Boston, and I'm amazed yeah. that it didn't go to New York. But uh, some really really terrific people in that in that show. So so we're back on set with with Mayor, and yeah, you're working during the pandemic. You rehearse with your mask on. You take your mask on. After they're rolling, last possible minute you take your, you probably don't even know what your director looks like. Do they, um, I'm, I'm going to get real technical here. Do they start with your coverage? Do they let you work up to it? How did they, uh, how did they shoot that, that one scene? Do you remember? My close coverage was, was last. That's the last thing that they shot. Okay. So you just kind of build up to get comfortable with the words and then you can just kind of blow it out. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a way I like to, to work as well. It's been such a weird time. I've worked with five directors that I would never recognize on the street since September because, you know, everyone's masked up and, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of guy who goes to the director and has questions and, you know, and I'm not a pain in the ass, but I've got, you know, I look for some guidance sometimes and, and I have no idea who these people are. I could, they could come into my house and I'd have no idea who they are. Since we're talking about theater so much, I had the, the, such a great pleasure to um, see you in Glengarry Glen Ross the second to last Broadway revival uh, with this bonkers cast. Actually, Liev Schreiber called in the, the matinee that I saw and um, he's, he's dead to me and I will never speak of him again, but you know, Alan Alda is in the cast. Jeffrey Tambor is in the cast. Fred Weller is in the cast. Um, it's this, uh, it's this murderer's row. Um, 
Moss is kind of the brains of the operation. And, uh, and, and that's you, you're the guy who, who handles the, the theft. Um, but you're not really busted until you're off stage. And I remember specifically, at least the performance I saw, you had such a resounding exit. You got a round of applause. It was it, yeah. You, it, I think that happened a lot because this was you were just in command of that stage. Yeah, you kind of couldn't um, miss, you know. You, well, you you couldn't miss, but there are people who miss though. You you uh, yes, but it's a lot of that is is you as just this guy who's just deflecting everything because he's guilty as sin. Um, when you're doing a play that has been filmed and the film is kind of iconic, do you immediately just try to? just drop everything, just get chase all the Ed Harris out of your head. How do you, how do you go in there and make it yours? The film was a completely different work of art. It was, uh, it was, it was dark and moody and uh, the play has the, the energy of the front page of the, of the, of the old, you know, forties, uh, plays. It's a very funny, fast paced piece of work. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, uh, my, my, my wife, uh, who we've been together for about 10 years and, uh, and in, in 2012, they did the, they did the revival, the, the second revival, uh, with Pacino and, uh, and Bobby Cannavale is Ricky Rocket. What's that? That's, uh, Bobby Cannavale. Uh, yeah, was Bobby the, Cannavale, uh, um, right. uh, Richard Schiff, um, uh, uh, McGinley, John McGinley. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a great cast. Sure. So, so we went to uh, an early matinee uh, in the in the in the run, and uh, and I said as the lights were going down, I said, "Get ready to jump on a moving train." Cause she she'd never seen the play or the or the film. And about about five minutes into it, she goes, "That train is a little late," because. <sighs> Pacino's performance was from another play. It was like I I told I told people you said you know, I, I went went home. They said they said uh, uh, people were asking me so so how was it how was how was it? I said it was great. I got to see two plays. I got to see um, I, I got to see six guys doing Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, and I got to see Al Pacino doing this Shelley Levine story. So what was it about him that he wasn't, was he just not pacing it up or what was? He was Al. No. And, you know, it was like, like that, that first scene. I remember, I remember Alan Alda. I remember um, um, Prosky, Robert Prosky in, in, in the original. That's right. Yeah. You know, that first scene, John, 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 the, the Glengarry Highland leads, you know, you're giving them, right? And, and Pacino is John. John. John? Oh, dear. Glengarry Highland Lees. <laughs> no, this is all what wrong. What a weird choice. What a weird, weird choice. It's so funny because I, I remember very specifically watching. So the very first scene is um, Williamson, who works in the office, talking to Shelley Levine. And Levine is, it's, it's, it's. It's on paper, it's a two-person scene, but it is Shelley Levine's very, very long monologue where he's insisting that he's just in a slump and with the right leads, he can start closing deals again. And the lights come up, there's Alan Alda, icon of stage and screen. The audience starts applauding and Alan Alda would not let them. He was just like, John, 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 just cut them off. Just cut them off at the knees. It was like, nope, not not here for that. Not here for that. I'm not Hawkeye right now. Shut up. And it was, it was this incredibly dynamic moment. 
And and that is what made the momentum because it's a very it's actually a pretty short first act. Um, and, and it has to be short because you just motor through and then you get to the big scene in the, in the office at the, in, there in, are three scenes in the first act and they yeah, set up the whole story. And then, you know, the curtain goes up and the, the office is trashed. It was a great Santo Lacosto set, if, if memory serves with like the dangling fluorescent lights. And it just looks like, even like, like, yes, it has just been robbed, but it clearly looks like shit when it isn't robbed. You know, it was such an evocative, uh, sense of place that had to be an incredibly fun run that show oh it was it, it was it was great it was a really 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 great punch and um you know we came in we did six months and we left and that was it gorgeous they had talked about maybe extending and getting somebody you know to replace the main guys who had to i think everyone was going someplace but uh but then they did this they they, they did the, the pacino one and, and jeffrey richards um uh produced that as well oh interesting same producer Oh, interesting. I mean, again, it puts butts in seats and it's a thing. It's an interesting thing because it's a, it's a play that like, like the most toxically masculine straight guy is still going to be like, no, I'll go see Broadway. If it's Glengarry, I'll go see Broadway. You can take me to a Broadway show if it's Glengarry, you know, I'm not going to go see Wicked, but I'll go Trump see. Trump came to see it. And it's, Trump came that, it's his energy. So, you know, he's, yeah. that's, you know, he came back. We, we took pictures with him and that's crazy he really enjoyed this show about corrupt real estate guys no further comment i'm gonna just let that sit there i have a couple stock questions i ask all of my guests um and i think this will be fun because you you strike me as as not just a a practitioner of the art but a real fan of the art um were there some character actors the guys who filled out the corner of of scenes that you looked to growing up like oh that guy's really interesting not necessarily the big stars but the guys who were in the supporting roles were there guys who leapt out you know it's funny because when you talk about character actors i i think of dennis franz as a character actor but he was a leading man and this but um he's one of the guys who broke the rules you know elijah cook elijah cook comes up every week on this podcast elijah cook has been mentioned no less than three times on this podcast elijah cook is the fucking patron saint he should be on our money he keeps coming up Go ahead. Well, I've got I've got the bi- I've got big names like Finney and you know people like that. But uh, um, you know now now says Stephen Tobolowsky, right? Um, oh oh God, my hero. Uh, Luis Guzman, uh, Jim Beaver. Although Jim is doing bigger and bigger parts now. Jim, you know, also a massive historian. He's going to stump me. He's going to come out with character actors that I've never heard of. The guy the guy wrote a book on John Garfield. He's just been talking about it. He was doing a character actor thing the other day on Facebook. And I- you guys know each other from the Milch universe, or um- well, weirdly enough, I did a series in Canada called Check It Out, which we call Check It Out. Check it out. And you know who the star was? Wait, with with Don Adams? Don Adams. Yes, I remember that. It was a grocery store sitcom. And it was syndicated. It wasn't on a network. It was syndicated. Or syndicated in the States. It's on a USA network. I came in for a, for a one episode thing and... They they signed me on for as as recurring, but it, but it, it was a pretty regular recurring. I I would do thirteen of twenty two or something like that. Wow! I was the uh, uh, I was the maintenance guy, Mister Viker, and uh, I had so much fun with Don Adams. Anyway, Don okay. Adams' daughter was married to Jim Beaver. 
Oh, wow. Don Adams' daughter, Cecily. That's the first time I ever heard of Jim Beaver was, was with Don up in Canada in 1986, 87. Yeah. Wow, we're getting some weather here. Oh, I heard that the, the Northeast is, is getting pummeled. Um, I'm going to let you go before your internet is blown out by Mother Nature. But um, uh, the, the last uh, stock question, a role that got away from Gordon Clapp. Doesn't have to be one that would have been a game changer, but one that you're like, ah, oh, that would have been fun. Well, it's still the, the the role still has not been committed to film yet, but it would. But John Sales asked me to do a role in a film that I'm not sure he's ever going to get to do now. But it was it was it was a western with um, with uh, Chris Cooper, and it had some really nice stuff in it. Um, it was it was small, but you know, a couple of scenes like like Mare, and I was doing a play. We tried to work out the, the the time when it was scheduled. We were trying to work out the day, and but I would have to fly to New Mexico and be back two days later. And so before I could even like try to work things out, he gave the part to Charlie Hayde. Uh, Charles Hayde from Hill Street Blues. Yeah. Yeah. So what can I say? Um, so that got that away, mean? but then I don't think Charlie ever got to do it either. I don't think that, that film has been made. One of the reasons it didn't get made was because it happened during the um, – you know, during the budget impasse and it was on federal land and they couldn't, there was nobody, nobody to sign off on the, on the permits or something. It was some ridiculous bureaucratic thing. So there was no one to, to sign off on a permit. That's heartbreaking. I I'm holding out hope. I don't think the film has, I don't think he ever got the money back to do it. I don't know. I don't know. I am going back to New York this fall and I'm doing a play, but I can't talk about it. Oh, fine. Be like that. Be all coy. Um, all right. So I'll see you when you bring Frost out to L.A. And I, I, I look forward to it. Uh, I wanted to mention I went back to Pennsylvania and did uh, did another, you know, few scene part uh, in a number of episodes um, in a in a in another limited series, another dark Pennsylvania uh, mill town story. And it's called Rust, and it stars Jeff Daniels and Maura Turney. Oh, I love both those people. Um, when is that? Uh, when is that dropping? Sometime in the fall. I love how much we have to look forward to between you helping to reopen New York and um, and your uh, slavish devotion to the Rust Belt. But yeah, this has been great. This this podcast has been really fun because we're getting people from all over the place who are. Um, uh, of varying degrees of everything. Everyone's got a great resume. Everyone has great stories. And it's been great because if anything, I've just been, you know, the homework is delightful. I haven't watched NYPD Blue since it initially aired. And it's so good. It, I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here. It, it's the, for me, it's the dawn of peak TV. Everyone talks about The Sopranos, but you got to go, you go six years before that to, you know, characters with a real moral ambiguity which is what everyone talks about with like, you know, Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Six Feet Under and all the shows that they always cite as like, this is the dawn of great TV, these complex moral dilemmas, The Wire, etc. All that shit starts with NYPD Blue in whatever it was, fall of 93. Yep. Maybe to a certain extent, Twin Peaks, um, although really just the first season um, before it becomes it becomes a very well shot soap opera. 
Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, it was, it's been so much fun going back to, to watch it. It holds up gorgeously. It really is a treat, man. I, I, it's, it's such a fun part of your, uh, of your resume. It's, it was a great ride for 12 years. It really was. It, it looks like it, it has this such a lived in quality where like it's just spontaneous enough and i know milch is religious about his dialogue everyone talks about that but it has such a lived in not improvisational but warm feeling between everybody that it almost feels improvisational in a way that's really exciting to watch well thank you and that is an episode wrap on gordon clapp who is not on social media good for him you can Google his show, Robert Frost, This Verse Business, and that will tell you about any upcoming dates. Before we go, I want to say a quick thing about Peter Scolari. He passed a couple weeks ago, way too young, from cancer at age 66. <clears throat> I was talking to my buddy Seth Morris, you'd know him if you saw him, about Peter's work. Peter, of course, was uh, Tom Hanks's co-star on Bosom Buddies in the early 80s. Tom Hanks went on to become... Tom Hanks, but Peter Scolari continued to work in the business, scoring another series regular role on Newhart, doing a ton of TV, theater, and film, and eventually winning an Emmy for his work as Lena Dunham's dad on HBO's Girls. We were talking about his career and how he inevitably had to sort of live in Tom Hanks's shadow, but made such a mark on the industry anyway. And Seth said something really beautiful. He said that people like Peter Scolari are the stonemasons of the entertainment industry. I'll leave you with that. May Peter Scolari's memory be a blessing. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm -hmm.